Life rarely goes the way we plan. Sometimes I have to laugh because on Sunday afternoons, I'll map out my week, and every morning, I'll map out my day. And I'll write down the things I need to get done, try to put them into my schedule, and it never goes the way I plan. In fact, that happened this past Monday. I got up, sat down, had my time with the Lord, looked at my day, wrote down what I had to get done, and started going through that checklist. Part of that was going to get a haircut. So I go where I always go, down to Broomfield, to Great Clips where I've gone for years. And typically they'll have someone different each time, but that's, it's a cheap haircut, and I go. And so I walked in this time, and there was a new guy there. He was, looked like a retired Navy sailor. I could tell by he had uh, tattoos on his arm, you know, the old sailor-type tattoos, kind of a tough guy, and I thought, hmm, this is interesting. It should have been my first sign that it was a guy and that his head was shaved. I should have thought about that too, but we got into an immediate conversation, and I'm talking to him about football probably or, or something else, and before you know it, he takes that razor and goes straight up my head, and I thought, there's nothing I can do about that. When I told this story to Diane later on, she said, what did you say? And I said, what do I say? Stop? Well, you can't just stop with that side. You got to do the other side. And I realized this, that nothing is going to change what just happened. Nothing. There's going to be a little bit of pain when I go home, when I look in the mirror. But in time, it'll grow out, probably a little more slowly than it used to, but it will grow out. Now, that's a change in circumstances, and that happens to us a lot, but it's such a small thing. And sometimes I laugh even telling you this story, but I'm sure most of you thought, Pastor, did you get a haircut? Well, I did, <laughs> and I won't need one for probably a very long time. But there are other circumstances in life that are much, much more serious that make a haircut so pale in comparison. I got a call from a friend the other night who had a friend I've never met, and their son and daughter were traveling out west, married young couple in their 20s, and apparently he had some sort of brain aneurysm and was life-flighted to Swedish Hospital in Denver. So my friend is calling me, asking me if I could help in any way, and so today I'm going to head down and try to encourage this family. And I think that's a circumstance that's weighty, that's heavy, that's big. And the scripture addresses how we respond to circumstances, big and small. But there are also relationships, relationships that don't go the way we planned, that are stressful and hard and difficult. And this is what the Apostle Paul is addressing in his letter to his beloved friends in Corinth, Greece, almost two millennia ago. And so when you think about this, there are so many practical applications that we carry over today, and I hope that this morning as we look into God's Word, that you'll find encouragement and how to confront some of these challenges. What had happened in Corinth is there was a lot of division. There was a lot of sinfulness. There was a lot, there was a lot going on that needed to be addressed. And as I shared last week, that typically the church is not good at this. We don't do well. Either we let a person go off and crash and burn and turn the other way and ignore it, 
or we blow them up before they blow themselves up. And I think, why is it that the church struggles to do something that we should be able to do better than anyone else? And so Paul shares his heart. We looked through the text, the last part of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and last week's message was working through that passage on Paul's heart. Today, what I'd like to do is a little different from what I normally do, but to step back and look at this subject of confrontation or correction as a whole and to share some principles. I'll give 10 principles or in, in the form of 10 questions I try to ask myself before I go to confront a problem. Every single one of us at our church at Valley will know someone or they will know us who need to be a confronted or helped or encouraged. When you see someone who's struggling, whether it's with sin or a problem or a difficulty, then you know this, that God has placed you into their life for a reason. And so as we work through this, I hope that you'll get a blessing from it. Typically, what I believe in the best way to preach through and teach through the scriptures is going through a book like this verse by verse, because I think God knows what you need to cover, and there are things that, that come up that you never would have planned on preaching on. Like when we get into chapter 5, very few people would choose some of these difficult problems, but they're the same problems that we face today. So God in his sovereignty knows that. I also love to go through the text because it helps us all as we read our Bibles daily, and many of you are doing this right now through the New Testament and the Bible, learn how to travel through the scriptures and let the, the word travel through your life and change your life. And so that helps us. It also shows us the continuity of the one unfolding story of scripture. It's just not this here and that there, picking this and picking that. Is showing this one beautiful unfolding story of God's word and revealing Christ. And so, uh, but, but sometimes I'll preach a message this, which will be more topical and expansive on the topic of correction. So here's the message that I'll be preaching today. And it is really addressing the idea of how do I go to someone who is struggling I may see a flaw in their life, a blind spot, something they're not recognizing right now, and I see this person, they're going to crash and burn if someone doesn't try to help them. How do I go through this? And I've formed 10 questions that I try to ask myself. Now, I don't pull out my little card every time this happens, but these are things that I've learned, I think, one from Scripture, because every one of these is, to me, founded upon Scripture. They're principles founded upon Scripture. I've also found, found this through experience, that uh, many times through my own failure of not responding in the proper way. So let's begin with number one. First question to ask myself, what I think you need to ask yourself, is I, have I prayed about this? Have I prayed about this? You'll hear me say this time and time again. I don't care if it's your job, your marriage, your kids, circumstance, knowing God's will, there is nothing that is more important for you to do in any issue, any problem, any confrontation, any crisis than to pray. I'd like to say you that it, that it, to you that it's the first thing that comes to my mind, to pray, but it's not. It's usually the very last thing that I tend to do. I want to exhaust all of my resources 
think of all of my plans of the ways to handle this. And prayer is usually the last thing to come, but it needs to be the very first thing that we do. A lot of times when you see a situation, a circumstance with a friend that's not doing well, and you think about going and talking to them about the problem, it just completely stresses you out. I remember back when I was in my 30s, I was a pastor, and there were several times where I had to go see the doctor because I had chest pains. I had this real tightness in my chest. I felt like I was getting numbness down my arm. I would start to panic that I was having a heart attack. I think I went in probably three or four times in my 30s to see the doctor, and the diagnosis every time was the same. I even had a heart cath one time and checking my heart out. The diagnosis was always the same. You have a perfectly healthy heart. And then they ask this question each time, do you have any stress in your life? And I'm thinking, no, <laughs> I don't have any stress in my life. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm a pastor. I shouldn't have stress in my life. I trust God. But the truth is, whether it was conscious or subconscious, all of that was starting to get to me. And, some, and our bodies are kind of wired that way. When we get stressed, you know, we'll start having aches and pains and headaches and things that are kind of indicators of that. And I think when I look back to that time period of my life, I was in those, those early years of just being a hard-charging young person, and <clears throat> I, I would tend to pray when I needed it, not before everything that I did. Later on in my 40s and 50s, when I think back, I, I smile because I had a, a lot more stress <laughs> in my life in my 40s and 50s, but I didn't have those same issues as much because I think I learned to discipline myself to stop and pray, to ask God for his help, for his wisdom, to show me the way, to give me calmness, to give me peace, to recognize what I could do and what I couldn't do, and really ask for his help. And I think that whether it's this situation of having to confront a good friend or someone you love, a brother and sister in Christ that's in need, or anything else in your life, that the first thing we do is to pray. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. I love these verses, especially in the New Living Translation. It says, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. So it, it tells you the thing we naturally do, worry, and what we should do, pray. And when we pray, we're not going to tend to worry like that. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, first of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanks, thanksgivings be made for everyone. This is what Paul is telling his young student, Timothy, his young disciple. The fir first of all, first thing, before you do anything else, you pray for these people. It's the most important thing we do. So have I prayed about this? Second question I ask myself, what is the goal? What is the goal? If I'm going to go and talk to my friend a brother or sister in Christ, and I've got to confront some really tough issues here, some observations I've made. I've got to ask them some questions. I think I've got to check my own heart and ask myself, what is the end game here? What is the goal? Is it justice? It is, is it exposure? Is it, aha, I caught you? Is it making them realize something? Convincing them? Is it I need to stand for what is right, or I need to be the one to speak the truth to that person. 
If that's your reason, you may better stop, pause, and step back a little bit. Because never is that, do we find that, the goal of Christ. His goal is restoration. And I think it's very important that we understand that. If I have a need to be right, or a need to expose something, or a need to correct something, or a, a, a need to be just, or that truth wins out, rather than really acting on behalf and for that person with a desire to restore and to reconcile them, I think I'm going to have a problem. Galatians chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2. We looked at that last week, but it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in a wrongdoing, okay, which happens all the time to your friends, and it happens to you. So if, if they're overtaken, in other words, it's, it's like Satan will hunt you down and overtake you. He says, you who are spiritual, in other words, if you're, if you're healthy and you're, you're doing okay and you're seeing this, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you won't be tempted. And then it says, carry one another's burdens in the way, in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Remember, we talked about that a little bit. The law of Christ is love. And the way it is fulfilled is by you carrying, helping carry their burden. The burden, the word, is like a ship overloaded and sinking. Different than the burden we read later on in that chapter that is like a backpack personal responsibility. And so there are times when I'm sinking, I'm sinking, or your friend is sinking. What is the goal? Not to go tell them, hey, you're sinking, and you know why you're sinking? And you should be sinking. <laughs> you know, that just is pride. But when I reach out and give a hand and help that person, that is the goal. Reconciliation, restoration, helping them get back on track. And if that's not your goal, then you need to stop and pray. Because until that becomes your goal, you're not going to help a thing. Number three, do I have all the facts? Do I have all the facts? My dad used to ask me that question, and the answer to that is, what I'd like to say is, of course I do. I always view myself as being, you know, there are people politically and in every other realm, there are people to the right and to the left. You ever talk about that right, right wing and right and left wing? Okay. <laughs> but I am balanced. I am right in the middle. And since I listen to all these things, I am perfectly balanced, and I have all the facts. Well, the truth is, no one on earth has all the facts. Now, that doesn't mean you're paralyzed and you can't function, but it should humble us to realize that only God sees everything. And if I start charging ahead without knowing certain things, I'm going to make this problem that my friend has a lot worse. I think back to when I was, again, a young pastor. And this is when I had all little kids, and I was counseling a family with teenagers. <laughs> now, what I realize now is the truth is the truth. So it doesn't change when you get older or if you're younger. I realize that. But experience does teach you a lot of things. At that time, this family was having difficulty with one of their teen girls. 
And I had been observing from a distance a lot of things that were going on. And of course, we all connect dots, don't we? We just connect dots. You see, I see this, I see this. They're not doing this. They are doing this. They're going. And so I'm watching all this, making certain assumptions, wanting to say something, wanting to help. And I'm waiting for them to come and ask for help. By the time they came to ask for help, I had already formed in my mind, exactly what they needed. But I was missing information. And you know what? I shattered that couple. I shattered them. Fortunately for me, I was able to ask their forgiveness, and they forgave me, and we continued to have a good relationship. I thank the Lord for that. Because I only had bits and pieces of my own observation. What I should have done is ask questions got more information, seeing it from other views. Because once that happened, then I realized there would be different counsel given to them. Here's what Proverbs 18, 13 says. This is a tremendous verse. It says, the one who gives an answer before he listens, this is foolishness and a disgrace for him. What I would add to that, it's a disgrace for him. It's also very hurtful for the people you're trying to help. So remember this, accusations will harden the will. Telling people things that you know can often just drive them away. Asking a good question will stir the conscience and open up the conversation. That's what we need to be really good at is asking questions. So that is number three, do I have all the facts? Number four, have I assumed the best? Have I assumed the best? In other words, have I given them the benefit of the doubt? This is hard to do because my mind, your mind, will naturally go to a worst-case scenario, and then we start connecting dots that aren't there. Our minds just naturally do that. Rather than thinking the very best, what could this possibly be, and entering into that conversation, when we go to correct with that in mind? You know what I found this, that if I assume the best and I'm wrong, well, I'm wrong, and, and, um, but I haven't lost much. But, but if I assume the worst and I'm wrong, I've done a lot of damage. A lot of times we'll see something and we'll say, I know why you did that. See, there's another thing. We don't know. We don't know. You don't know a person's motives. You say, well, I know what they are because what they did. Well, you don't know if that's driven by fear or pride or anger or discouragement or depression. You don't know. You don't know what that motive is. You don't know all the circumstances that will be, be uh, going behind that. So when you talk about this, assume the best motive and assume the best case scenario. Here's what, what uh, 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, love thinks no evil. Love thinks no evil evil. Philippians 4.8 says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, whatever is commendable, if there be any virtue, any praise, think on these things. So get your mind to the best possible scenario. Now, that doesn't mean that, that you're blind to what's going on and that you don't understand that there could be other things here, but you don't go in with that attitude. 
So have I assumed the best? Number five, have I considered myself? <laughs> this is pretty humbling. Often the things that irritate me the most about other people are things I struggle with. You ever see that about yourself? The things that irritate you the most about other people are what you struggle with, just in a little different form, and you're blinded to it. One of the stories I tell, I don't like to really tell this one, but uh, when my kids were teenagers, and we used to love to go skiing together as a family, and, but someone would always forget something, forget a hat, forget gloves, forget goggles, we'd have to go rent some boots, forget the snow pants, and so I had this little saying, kids, make a list, make a mental checklist, a mental checklist. Go through, close your eyes, and think through, I've got my hat, I've got my goggles, I've got my scarf, I've got my inner layer, I've got my coat. I said, go through your mental checklist. And I'm just preaching this all the way up the mountain. We get up there, and kids are all getting ready. We're at the, the back of the Suburban, unloading all the gear. You know, when you've got three kids and, and, and uh, husband and wife, and you're skiing, you got a, a lot of stuff. <laughs> And so we're just unloading, getting all dressed and everything else. And I'm the last one to get all ready because I'm getting all the kids their stuff. And they're all waiting on me, and I'm looking for my pants. I can't find my pants. And I have, here's the sad thing about this. I left them at the house. Those kids will never, my wife will never let me forget mental checklist. I can't even use that terminology anymore. Because the very thing that frustrated me about them, I was guilty of myself. And, and this is the way we are. This is the way the Pharisees were. And the church cannot be that way. The things that bug us about other people really are energy going out against them rather than energy toward us correcting our own issues. And, and if, I, if I am condemning someone, this is, this is what we read in... in um, in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, you know, where it says, judge not that you be not judged. In other words, don't be passing judgment without, without doing some self-judgment before you do that. Galatians chapter 6, it says, uh, you know, restore another person in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. I also shared last week a story of my friend that I had tried to help that the first thing I thought of is I, that could have been me. It could have been me. And I think that any time we're helping someone to realize if, if we did not have Christ, if we did not have his grace, a certain set of circumstances unfold, we could be in that exact same spot. So when you think that and recognize that could be me, and I need to look in the mirror at my own self, and if there are things that I need to make right, I need to do that before I even approach this. So have I considered myself? Our time will probably come when someone is coming to us, and we need to have that kind of a spirit. So number six, have we formed a right process? Have we formed a right process? Because just seeing the need, knowing something needs to be done, there should be a right process. Now, fortunately... We have in Scripture, <laughs> God unfolding it for us, tells us exactly how we should do this. We find it in Galatians chapter 6, the first number of verses, and in Matthew chapter 18. And so I'd like to just read these verses, and I'm going to make several of these points that uh, from 6 on, 6 and 7 actually, 
from, from this. Matthew 18, verse 15, and it says, if your brother sins against you, in other words, someone, someone does something to you, they sin against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. That's an Old Testament quote there. It goes on to say, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell it to the church. That means the Lord, you expand the body. All of this is trying to help this person. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Now, there's a lot to unpack there that I won't be able to do because we're moving through 10 points today. But here's the thing. If, if someone I see has sinned against me or they are crashing and burning, I go to them. He says, you go to them and you do it alone. And, and, and if, if it's successful, you've won your brother. They're restored. If that meeting is not working, they're not responding to you, you take someone else with you maybe another person or two other friends, and, and you go and you surround that person with the same objective of restoration, considering yourself, lest you be tempted. If that's not working, you continue to expand the influence because the church should be rescuing, restoring, reconciling people with God better than anyone else. And our goal is that we're not going to let you crash and burn. We're not going to let you do that, and we're not going to ignore this. And it says that if, if they continue to live that way, let's say a person just says, you know, I'm going to continue living this way. I don't care what you say. That's when by that time the church knows, and you're saying, you know what? It's not that you never talk to them again. It's not that you, it says when you treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector, you talk to Gentiles and tax collectors. You don't, you don't never talk to them, but it's not the same. It's not the same. Sitting down at the Lord's table praying together, studying God's Word. It's not the same, so we're not going to treat it the same. And we are going to continue to pursue, pursue you and to love you back to Christ and back to reconciliation. So what the church, you know, this kind of starts small, one-on-one, one one, keep it as small as you can, and it expands as far as we can, and, and the largest it gets is when the whole church knows that we are loving and praying for this reconciliation process. And as I said, the church ought to be better at this than anyone else. We take one step at a time, prayerfully and carefully. You know, I, of, I often think about forming this right process. You've heard the expression, fire, ready, aim. <laughs> That's how people do it. And, but we, we're careful. We take it patiently. We're not rushing, you know, to... It's not like we're going to drag them before the church and expose what you've been doing. That's, that's not the goal. That's not what we do. It's one-on-one, -on -one, maybe two-on-one, three-on-one, more-on-one, and the whole time it's working to restore this person. Number seven, who should be involved and who should know? Again, coming back to Matthew 18 and that process that we talked about, I think this is a very important part of this. Who should be involved and who should know? Now, those in spiritual oversight, because Paul is, Timothy is, others are, and if you have spiritual oversight and knowledge of such a thing happening in the body, then your elders, pastors are coaching you along this process. They're not going to go do it for you. 
They're going to help you in this process. But if you have a friend, you notice something, you see something, then, then that elder pastor is going to help you follow through this and come alongside you and, and be involved to that level. So I would say, number one, when you've been sent against or you know about it, you see it, you, you, you're involved. And as we said, you go back to number one, you pray about it, and, and you follow through this process. Secondly, who should know about it are those that have been impacted by that sin. So if someone has sinned against the church, say they've, they've uh, stolen money from the church or they've, they've um, done some, some unconscionable deed and it has affected certain people, all of those people need to know. And I think you probably go to them one-on-one -on -one and then maybe as a group, but there needs to be uh, confession and repentance and asking for forgiveness and naming the specific sins. I think this is very important. When someone has sinned against someone else, we need to say what that sin was. It's not just general, I know I haven't been perfect. It's not it. No, I have sinned against you by doing X and, and Y. And I am asking you to forgive me. And then a person has the opportunity to forgive them. And sometimes that's hard for people. Um, I've asked people to forgive me before that refused to do that. That's pretty tough, but that's all that you can do. And so as elders, you're coaching people to, you need to repent, ask for forgiveness. We're encouraging you to forgive them and to restore them back into fellowship. So those impacted by the sin. Uh, specifics need to be named and not, not general. But then also those who already know about the sin. If there's a scandal in the church and everyone already knows about it, it needs to be addressed publicly, <clears throat> not in every detail, but I think so that the church body knows that this is being handled, it is being reconciled, this person is being restored. And <clears throat> particularly when you have situations nowadays that, in, that involve violations of people, or there might be a potential danger, uh, people need to know. And so you do it in a discreet way. This isn't where you go into every detail. But it needs to be handled probably in a private church meeting. Number eight, am I the right person to initiate this? You know, sometimes you're not the one to do this. Um, you know about it, but so does someone else. And they have a relationship that you don't have. And I think that one of the key parts of this is, is if you have a good relationship, you're in a better position to do it. If, if someone's new at the church or I hardly know them, it's, it's a lot harder to go and say, can I talk to you? But if I've got a really good relationship, it does make it easier. So I think that if there's several people that know about this and who is the best person to go and start this process? Uh, again, Matthew 18, I would, I would point to that. If you made deposits, is this the best option? Number nine, is this the right time? You know, I think that uh, you go back to the fire ready aim and timing. You know what you need to do. And I think it's somewhere between right now and, well, when I get around to it. There's probably some time in there that will be appropriate. When, when you have a good setting, it's a good time. You can have your attention. The person's ready to hear. You don't put it off forever, but you don't rush into this either. And I think this is what you, you, you pray about. Ephesians 5 and, and verses uh, 15 and 16, be care, pay careful attention then how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most 
of the time um, because the days are evil. So you make the most of your time. You, you treat that time as great value. And this is a part of wisdom. So finally, number 10. And I think probably this is most important. I ask this question. Is love driving this? Is love driving this whole process? Because if it's not, stop. Stop. Step back. And you wait until it is driving this process. It should be the engine moving everything forward in reconciliation and restoration. Because I can tell you this, that when Jesus came to reconcile us to God and rescue us from our sins, he came and love. And love is what drove God to send his son. Love is what drove Christ to come to this earth and to reach out to you. And love should drive us when we are working toward restoration and reconciliation. At the very end of chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians, and we're, we're going through this walk in wisdom, walk in wisdom. At the end of chapter 12, it says, I will show you a more excellent way. And what it is, is love, love. It's agape love. It is unique to the Christian faith. It is not just like marriage love or brotherly love or or, or I love these things. It, it is a, an unconditional love that was perfectly expressed by God in sending his son. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love never fails. Listen to that again. It believes all things, hopes all things, and, and it, uh, sorry, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. It means it never quits. It never ends. It never gives up. You know, in our church, we have a man who I feel is incredible. And don't mean to embarrass him, but many of you know Hal Jenks. Hal, Hal Jenks is an octogenarian. He's in his later 80s. <clears throat> and when I think of how, I think of how he has invested in young men. When you come to church, you're always going to see young men, I'm talking college students, hanging around how. How does that work? How, how are young men in their 20s hanging around a guy who's in his 80s? Because he loves them. He genuinely loves them, and he cares about them, and he reaches out to them, and he checks how they're doing, and he's interested in their lives, and they know that. He loves them. And here's what I've watched through the years with Hal Jenks. <clears throat> he loves them to the end. This is how Jesus' love is described in John 13. Jesus loved his disciples to the end. Hal never gives up. And love never gives up. It never gives up. So when someone has fallen away, they're caught up into sin or a fault, they've drifted from Christ, they've drifted from the family, you never give up. You don't just let them go and never give up. Now, you may not be able to reach out as often because they're not receiving it, but you never give up. You never give up praying. You never give up reaching out. You never Give up being able to open your door and welcome them back to a conversation to help reconcile and restore. This is the life of Jesus. 
Now you think back to his last days on the earth. Judas betrayed him, Peter denied him, Thomas doubted him, and the rest of them deserted him. They all sinned against Jesus, just like this is saying. They sinned against Jesus. And all of them were restored except Judas, and that's because he refused to do so. They were all reconciled back. He never gave up. I love reading John 21 when he restores Peter. So when we talk about wisdom, you could take all 10 of these principles, take the scripture out, take Christ out, take the cross out, and you know what? They still work on a practical, pragmatic level, but not eternally, not in a life-changing way, not a, in a transforming way. And that's the difference between the wisdom of the age that we see all around us and the wisdom and the power of the cross. So to walk in wisdom is a Christ-centered, cross-centered life that we need. Our takeaway, let me leave you with these words. The work of Christ is the work of the church. It is the ministry of reconciliation and restoration. We should be better at this than anyone else. May God help Valley Community to Church to be such a place. Father, thank you for your word. It's powerful. It's needful. And may we respond with an affirmative amen and our desire to be this kind of church and to be this kind of people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.